grab a seat. It is so wonderful to be with you today. Uh, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors on the team. And you might want to grab your notes out of your handout. And you will see we are continuing in a series. This is a walkthrough of the book of Colossians. This amazing manifesto about who Jesus is and how we might just actively be in a vibrant relationship with him. And, and normally what I try to do is I try to think of a warm open to kind of just like ease us in. And, and this week, actually, as I was writing the message, I was sitting on my back deck in full sunshine. And I was so warm. I thought, this is warm enough right here. Like, this just works perfectly. Hasn't it been an amazing week? Just the weather's been beautiful and the leaves. And yeah, well, it's the Lord. I mean, yeah, he, this is his, the Northwest is his backyard. And he loves it so much that he waters it profusely. And, and yet on, on a week like this, it just was absolutely exquisite. Hey, I want to I ask you to write something down. I want, you to, I want you to write this down and I want you to ponder this. It's not a fill-in or anything, but it's this. It's, it's this is the reality of Jesus. And so I want you to write this down. Jesus didn't come to change God's mind about humanity. He came to change humanity's mind about God. Write that down. Jesus didn't come to change God's mind about us. God already loved us. He came to change our mind about God, to reveal who God is, to show us more clearly and more fully who God is. You know, as we were being led in worship, just an amazing morning of worship, and I don't know about you, but, but I'm just telling you, sometimes when, when we come together in corporate worship, God just breaks my heart and puts it back together and breaks it again just with his beauty and, and the, the truth that we were singing was so powerful today. But the picture I got in my mind of Jesus revealing God to us was the picture of the father and the prodigal son, where the father searches the horizon and the father's looking for those that are far from him. And the father can't even stay on the porch, but he's got to run across the fields when he sees his son and wraps him up in his arms. That's the father that Jesus came to reveal to us. That's who it is that Jesus came to show humanity. God is like that. And he came to open up this beautiful relationship that we can have with our loving heavenly father, with all of the grace that he offers, with all of the identity as God's beloved sons and beloved daughters. And, and no longer do we have to approach God tripped up by shame or defined by sin, but we are truly set free because of the work of Jesus. And so that's what Paul's trying to unpack as he's going through this book called Colossians, written to the church at Colossae. And, and this is what he says in verse 13, chapter 2. God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. And this is a little bit of a backtrack. It's a little bit of a recap from last week. We talked about this verse. But if you're filling in the blanks, it's so important to know that in Jesus, we are alive and forgiven. We are both alive spiritually, and we are forgiven totally. And what this means, friends, what it means is you are not your past. This means that you are not your habits. You are not your hang-ups. You are not your parents. You are not your genetics. That in Jesus Christ, you are alive. You are free in Jesus. That you are new in Jesus. You are whole in Jesus. You see, sin, it was the problem. 
Sin is what separated us from God. And because of sin, we were spiritually dead. But friends, Jesus is the answer to that problem. Because Jesus deals with the sin issue forever. And Jesus unites us with himself and he brings us to life in him. And then Paul continues. And this is in verse 14. He says, he, Jesus, canceled the record of charges against us. And he took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. See, I want you to look at that passage right now, and, and I want you to understand that this is the grace that Jesus offers. Look, not only has he forgiven you, but he took the record of all of your offenses, and he nailed it to the cross, and he crucified it there. So the record is completely gone. Your record is wiped clean. Amen. Are you guys with me? Like, that's amazing. Your, your record is wiped clean. And, and, and it's gone forever. The sin past, the sin present, the sin future. Jesus has taken care of your sin problem. And then Paul says this thing. It's really interesting. He disarmed, right? He disarmed those spiritual powers, those, those, those enemies against God. And then he publicly shamed them, right? He, he shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. And, and, you know, I don't know if you're like me, but when I come to that verse, it feels a little odd. And I, I don't know exactly what to do with it. He shamed them publicly. And then, actually, we were talking this week, and, and you guys know Pastor Pat. Pastor Pat's uh, kind of unpacking this passage. And, 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 and it, what we realized, what, Paul, what Pat was trying to describe to me is this. The cross was an instrument of shame, was it not? I mean, crucifixion was the most publicly shaming form of execution there ever has been. That, that somebody was stripped naked and then beaten. And then they were stapled to rough-hewn wood. And then they were elevated high up in a very public place where, where, where crossroads would meet. So that everyone who was passing by would see them and would be able to mock them and scorn them and shame them. And, and that was the whole purpose of the cross. But what Paul is saying here is that the cross, although it was an instrument of shame, for Jesus it was a pathway to glory. And for you and I it was a pathway of salvation. And it was not shame for Jesus and it was not shame for us. But it was shame, Paul says. Because God created this amazing spiritual ricochet effect that instead of Jesus being shamed as the enemies of God wanted him to, it was, re it was reflected off and ricocheted back and it shamed them. And it publicly shamed them and not only did it shame them but it disarmed them. Their plan didn't work and now they have no weaponry against God or against the people of God. We talked about this last week that, yes, the enemy, he, he, he's, you know, roaming around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But, friends, this is the truth. He is a toothless lion. There is no power in him. The, the enemies of God, there, there is no weaponry that can take hold against you or against, uh, you know, God and, 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 and the work of God in your life. And so here's what I want you to understand. It's not that they, uh, they, they haven't been vanquished forever. We know this, right? We experience this. We know the enemies of God, uh, the spiritual powers, they're, they're, that is still a spiritual reality that we have to contend with. But you need to understand there is no, there is no weaponry. There is, there, they might scare you. They might go bump in the night. They might try to trip you up. They might try to discourage you, get you off track. But you need to understand, and I want you to understand this today, Overlake. 
greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Right? If you're in Christ, you have his power. You're united with him. And so you can walk and you can overcome and you can vault over every obstacle that comes against you. Why? Because you are united in him. And Jesus on the cross has taken your record and nailed it to the cross. And the shame that they wanted against you has ricocheted back and disarmed them for all of eternity. Woo. I must have had some caffeine this morning. I am so in love with what Jesus has done. I, I hope you get this. I hope you understand. And then, and then Paul, he, he continues, and, and we're going to read this next passage of Scripture because I have a feeling that what Paul was doing was he was dealing with a specific issue in the church of Colossae. I think that, that as he was talking with the leader of this church, that, he, that he, they recognized that there were some challenges there. And so Paul begins to write, I think, something that's really specific to the church in Colossae. But let's read this passage because I know you'll see that it's also relevant to the Christian community today. To us at Overlake even, maybe some of us. So let's jump in. It's verse 16 through 23. I'm just going to read the whole thing and then we'll unpack it. He says, so don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink. Or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come. And Christ himself is that reality. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels. Saying they've had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud. And they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body. For he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. You've died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about the things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion highest self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. All right, so let's, let's jump in here. And in general, what you need to know, and you might just want to write this down in the margins somewhere, that this is an argument against legalism. That what Paul is doing is he keeps coming back to the centrality of Jesus and our vibrant relationship with our living Lord. And the intense freedom that's available because of the cross of Calvary. And he comes in contrast with that freedom, this religious legalism. And so this can get confusing. So I want you to understand that Paul sometimes refers to the law or he refers to these rules. And, it, and you need to understand that the argument is not that the law is bad. In fact, Paul writes this in 1 Timothy 1.8. He says, we know that the law is good if... One uses it properly. Could you circle the word if? If one uses it properly. Now, for those that have been on the journey with us here at Overlake, you know this is exactly what we teach. We teach that, yes, we look at the whole canon of Scripture. We value the whole canon of Scripture. We believe that God's Spirit is uh, uh, the inspiration for the entire book called the Bible that we have as the Holy Scripture. But I want you to understand it is to be used properly. And how we discern that is through the person of Jesus. We talk about how the whole Bible points forward to Jesus, and then Jesus becomes the lens through which we interpret all of the Scripture. So yes, we agree with the Scripture that the law is good if 
it is discerned and used properly, okay? And you might want to write this down as well. The law points to Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the law. So the law points to Jesus, and Jesus is the one who fulfills the law. Hebrews 10.1 says this, The old system in the law of Moses was only a shadow of the things to come, not the reality of the good things Christ has done for us. So the law of Moses was a shadow of the things to come, not the reality. Now I've been mulling over this, this, this concept all week long. This idea of the shadow is of the things to come. That the law is the shadow of things to come. And I was thinking about it uh, one afternoon this week. I got home and I, I was taking my dog for a walk. We were walking on this trail and it was kind of late afternoon. And the sun was directly behind me. And so I'm walking my dog, the sun is behind me, it's kind of low on the horizon, so my shadow stretches out before me quite a length. And then I thought to myself, what if there was an ant on the trail ahead of me? And the ant is under my shadow. And the ant dwells under my shadow because my shadow stretched out quite a ways. It dwelled under my shadow for quite some time before I arrived in person. Does that make sense? And then I thought, oh my goodness, what an what a analogy for, for those uh, who were in the, you know, the, the people of God, the people of Israel. They're underneath that shadow for quite some time before what? Before the person of Jesus himself arrives. So the shadow goes before, but then the person arrives. And everybody forgets the shadow when the person is there. Amen. In fact, that's what Paul is arguing here in Colossians 2.17. He says, for these rules are only shadows of the reality to come, and Christ himself is that reality. Amen. All right, so let me just ask this person, just real practically, okay. What would you rather hug? Do you want to hug a shadow or do you want to hug a person? Right? Like there's a difference between a shadow and a person. And I'll tell you a story. This is like, it's a little embarrassing for me to tell you. I, I, I'm, I'm a little embarrassed. So uh, let me just tell you this. When my wife, Jody and I, were first dating, so we're not married, we're just dating. We dated for like three or four months, and, and our relationship, it, it was sort of like, you would imagine, it was like picking up steam. Like we were, we were starting to get just really, like we just, we knew we were falling in love. And, and we, you know, all I could think about was how to spend more time with her and, and how we could hang out more. And she was in this other town, kind of an hour and a half away. So I was constantly making this trip. And, and it just was like, all I could do, I just wanted to be with her, you know, and, and, and then she, with InterVarsity at the time, she goes on a mission trip for the entire summer. So she's gone all summer long. I mean, it's just when I was like falling head over heels for her. I couldn't think about anything else. Now she leaves for the entire summer. And InterVarsity, it's a, it's a wonderful organization. It's a great ministry. But they had these rules around the mission trip that she was on. She was only allowed to talk on the phone one time a week. It was like Thursday afternoon. I could only talk to her one time a week. So just so you know, I, I hate InterVarsity. Like I hate them uh, totally. But um, so, so, I was so I was so crazy about Jody, And I was missing her so completely during that summer. And I, I had this picture of her. And this is the embarrassing part. <laughs> I, I, I kissed that picture. 
don't judge me. I, I, like, like I have never pretended to be cool in your presence. I, ho- I hope you know. So just being honest here. Uh, but I want you to understand when that summer was over and God reunited Jody and I and we actually professed our love and, and we became, you know, kind of on the pathway of engagement at that point. I want you to understand, I never kissed the picture again. Are you tracking with me? Like, like when you have the person with you, why would you go back to the 2D image when you've got 3D reality right here? And that's what Paul is trying to argue. He's like, look, don't go backwards into legalism. Don't go backwards into law. Don't go backwards into rules. Why? It's a 2D image. It's just flat. It's monochrome. It's not going to take you where you want to go. But Jesus himself will. Jesus himself is that reality. And there's this other thing, too, because you need to understand that, that legalism breeds judgment. And what Paul seems to be arguing here is that there were people that were sort of judging one another in the church because they, you know, explored these certain rules and, and other people didn't. And so they would, they would judge them. And maybe in this first century church, they would say something like, well, we worship on Saturday because that is God's Sabbath. And someone else would say, well, we worship on Sunday because that's the Lord's day where he rose from the grave. You know? And they would just judge one another based on these rules that they had committed to. Uh, religious preference, right? It becomes a way to beat other people up with. Or they might say things like, well, we celebrate this Jewish holiday every time, and I, I don't think you do. And, and the reason why we do is because we're, we're more holy than you are, you know. And, and they, would, they would just judge one another based on their religious preferences. Now, we don't have those same kinds of things that Christians get legalistic about today. But you can imagine what some of them might be. You, you, you could imagine that today's legalistic Christians might be um, legalistic around how they vote. Well, real Christians will all vote this way. Or they might get legalistic around the kind of translation of scripture they use. Well, all real Christians will use this translation and no others. Right? You can see that there are these legalistic things that, that Christians might get legalistic around. Maybe the kind of music they never listen to. Or the kind of adult beverages that they never consume. Like coconut water which is disgusting. <laughs> it's a result of the fall. So, <clears throat> And then the other thing about legalism is it can make us proud. So, so there can be these thoughts that come in like, well, fasting is making me holy. And I would just argue, no, it's not. No, it can't. Jesus is who makes us holy. Is fasting connecting you with Jesus? Because if it is, great then keep going after it, but just realize Jesus himself is the prize, not checking something off some spiritual checklist. And if, if, if Jesus, if, if you're not becoming more intimate with Jesus through fasting, then by all means, eat a cheeseburger, right? Do, do everyone a favor. And, and, and so you need to understand that it's possible for you to fill your lives with spiritual disciplines and new rules that you put on yourself and your heart still remain unchanged. You see, spiritual disciplines are never the point. Jesus himself is the point. And when we allow our spiritual disciplines to become the point, then we lose because they lack the power to push our lives into holiness and intimacy with Jesus. 
It's a, li- a, bit, a little bit like the golfer who discovers a new practice drill to improve his drive. But it actually causes him to slice to the right. And so he practices that drill more diligently and more fervently and with greater intensity. And his slice gets worse and worse. Pretty soon he can't land on the fairway to save his life. And finally a golf buddy says, dude, that drill is killing your game. You've got to stop it. And the golfer replies, but I love that drill. You see, the point is never the drill. The spiritual discipline is never the point. Jesus is. And if it's drawing you closer in relationship and intimacy with Jesus, then go hard after it. But if it's not, or if it's causing you to become proud, or if it's causing you to judge someone else, or condemn someone who doesn't have exactly the same practice as you, then you've got to cut it and let it go. There was this book that came out a while ago. It was a bestseller, and it was called uh, uh, something like, God is not great, why religion rules, ruins everything. And I just want you to know, I never read that book, but I read an article about that book, which means I am an expert. And, and, and one of the things that I, I want you to understand is that thoughtful Jesus followers need to understand that it is true that religion has caused wars in our history. It is true that religion creates condemnation and judgment and can foster hatred and pride and racism and all kinds of horrible, horrible things. Like we have to, as thoughtful Jesus followers, have to understand that there's a way to do it wrong. And Paul is arguing, don't do it wrong. It's not about the rules, it's about the relationship with Jesus. And that's what Jesus died on the cross to invite us into. Not so that we can become more judgmental, not so that we can become more puffed up or proud, but so that we could be more loving and more gracious in our relationship with him and with one another. All right, so Paul continues. He says this in verse 20. You've died with Christ, he set you free from the spiritual powers of this world, So why do you keep on following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. All right, so there were all these rules around what you could eat, what you could touch, what you could taste. Like, and, and it's a little bit different today because first century, obviously, we removed 2,000 years. In this part of the world, there would often be uh, temples to, to, you know, gods and sort of the mythological um, you know, compendium, and so there'd be this temple, maybe to Zeus, and, and people would uh, you know, sacrifice animals to Zeus, and then on the back side of the temple, they'd be taking those uh, cows and whatever, and they'd be cooking them up, and they'd be serving the steaks to the population, and so there was a lot of concern in the first century um, 
so I'm a Christian, so, so can I go have a steak or can I not? I, I, that was sacrificed in the temple. What? And so there were all these rules, and a bunch of Christians, uh, you know, had, had rules. No, don't do that. Don't taste that. Don't touch that. Don't handle that. And then there's these other Christians who were free in Christ, and, and they're saying, yeah, I really enjoy ribs, you know, and that's where I like to go. And, and so, so that's where Paul's addressing it specifically. But I want you to understand sort of the deeper argument that Paul is making is focusing on things that you're not supposed to do does not help you become more holy, more vibrant, more alive in Jesus. That's what Paul's arguing. The, the, just the, it, it's just how we're wired as humans. That whatever it is that we focus on staying away from not doing, you need to understand that we're sort of inevitably kind of drawn that direction. It's just a, I call it the irony of human wiring. But whatever you focus on not doing or not thinking about, you will inevitably think about. I, I'll just give you a really quick illustration, okay? Clear your minds. Just everybody, clear your minds. Just blank slates right now. Just everyone, just clear. Some of you, that's already where you were. That's fine. <laughs> just, clear, just total blank slate right now. Clear your mind. Okay. Now, here's what I, I don't want you to do. Do not think about chocolate cake. Don't think about chocolate cake. Don't think about the word chocolate cake. Don't think about the visual images of chocolate cake. Don't think about, my, my grandma made this delicious, uh, it was a sheet cake. It was a chocolate sheet cake. And it was just so moist and tender and we'd have it with a vanilla ice cream. I mean, it was, don't think about that. Don't, don't, I don't, I don't want you to think about like a German chocolate cake that your aunt makes. I, I don't want you to, like just, no, don't think about Chocolate cake. You know, I don't want you to think about this chocolate cake right here. Okay, just, just don't think about that. This is homemade. Pastor Liz actually made it this week. Oh, my gosh. It smells delicious. Don't, don't think about this chocolate cake right here. Has it worked? It, it, the irony of it all is by thinking about what not to think about, every one of us is salivating right now. And that's just how we're wired, right? And, and now let me give you a contrast. By contrast, my son Caleb. When, when my son Caleb was three years old, we, uh, we had like, I forget what the celebration was, but it was a little bit of a family celebration. So we took the family to Claim Jumper. Do you guys remember Claim Jumper? And at Claim Jumper, they have what I would consider to be a somewhat famous chocolate cake dessert. Do you remember this? It was called the Mother Load. I, I just call it chocolate monstrosity, uh, but it, it was seven layers of just delicious chocolate cake, and, and so we got that, and we carved it up, and everybody had a plate, and, and so Caleb, my three-year-old son, gets this plate of chocolate cake, and, and right next to the plate is his plate that he was, you know, served his meal on, and he notices that there is a a piece of kale. This was like, Clam Jumper used to throw like monster-sized kale on their plates uh, in connection to the monster-sized serving that they just offered you. And so, so Caleb picks up a piece of kale that's bigger than his own head, and he decides to pretend he's a dinosaur, and he eats the entire piece of kale. He's just like devouring, he's just loving it, just chewing this piece of kale. There's a $27 dessert untouched on his plate. And he's eating the garnish, right? And he never, ever turned and went for the cake. And, and he, here's the deal. He was 
completely free of that cake. Do you understand? Like, it, it was not even a thing. There was no desire. There was no, uh, I can't, you know, he's three years old, but he's like, I can't because I got my toddler pat, you know. And I like, like he's, he's, not, he's not thinking about the cake at all because he's focused on this other thing. And, and I, I want you to understand that's kind of Paul's argument here. If your focus is on the don't do this and don't do that and don't do this and make sure you avoid that, you're missing out on the invitation that Jesus is actually drawing us into. I kind of put it this way in my mind. Don't be a don't, don't Christian. Be a do, do Christian. Right? There's all kinds of things to do. Don't be a don't, don't Christian. You might want to write that down. That's pretty good. You know, last week we talked about how in Jesus your sin nature is cut away. And we'll come back to it. Paul actually comes back to it in the next chapter. See, Jesus has removed our sin nature forever. And the reality is, and this is true for every one of us in here, each one of us still has wounds. We all still have areas of brokenness. Many of us have trained ourselves with behaviors to want what's actually bad for us. But last week we talked about this reality called a phantom limb, where a person who's missing a limb still feels a desire to stretch or maybe itch or even experiences pain from that limb. And yet, the limb is not there. It's no longer attached. And that's the truth for us who are in Christ because we still find some sin that's tempting to us. And so we think that our sin nature is still attached, but friends, it's gone forever. And as a part of our faith, as a part of the spiritual journey with Jesus, is we lean into his healing. And we lean into the person of Christ and our identity in Christ. And we allow him through that connection to replace our want-tos. And what this means is we are set free in Jesus. We are truly set free. And if it feels like you've heard this kind of truth before for me, A, you have, and B, I still don't think we've gotten it yet. That we really are free in Jesus. And so over, like, let's claim this. Let's claim the reality that our sin nature and the record of our sin has been nailed to the cross. Let's claim that reality. See, everyone gets a little burdened by things that seem to hold us or drag us down or trip us up. And, and there's this incredible power in recognizing the freedom and claiming the freedom that we have in Jesus. So we're set free, not merely not to do bad things, but we're set free to do good things, to focus on love, to dwell on generosity, to imagine how we might care for and serve one another, to, to understand and receive the character of Christ and begin to step into that fullness of character in our own lives. And the power of Jesus is that he puts new desires into us. He, he just as a process of sanctification, he slowly removes the stuff that we've trained ourselves to want that's bad, and he slowly puts in the new stuff, the stuff that trains us to want what he wants for our lives. You know, when I was training for my last marathon, there were a list of don'ts, right? Don't eat certain foods like, you know, chocolate cake. Don't, don't uh, 
stay up late the night before a race, don't, you know, don't have caffeine or alcohol before you ran, that would dehydrate you, damage your body. Like there's, there's all kinds of don'ts that you could talk about in regard to training for and running a marathon. But I want you to know, no matter how long that list of don'ts was, if that's all I focused on and I did that list perfectly, when I arrived at the starting line, and ran, I'd be toast before the second mile. Because there's this whole other reality that you have to get into, and it's what you actually do. It's what, it, it's what the, the goal actually is that you are embracing and participating in. And so it's this desire to, to really enjoy training and, and to train in such a way that, that you, your body actually flourishes under and, and, and to not only enjoy a body that can run, but then to enjoy the running itself. And then also, of course, to train yourself to run even when you're not enjoying that experience. And, and because all those things were the things that I ended up focusing on, the stuff to do, well then, you know, it, it, I mean, it's not like a... A illustrious career, but I've, I, I've ran a few marathons. I ran a dozen half marathons. It's nothing like Pastor Pat, who's an Ironman. Yes, you have an Ironman pastor on your team. It's amazing. But I'm just telling you, like, like there's this whole world that gets opened up if you focus on what to do. If you focus on what the invitation of Jesus really is. Instead of focusing on what not to do, just let yourself imagine what it is that Jesus is inviting you into. That's where the excitement lies. Okay, so what happens when a person becomes legalistic? Paul writes this. He says, their sinful minds have made them proud, for they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body. For he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. So in order to avoid legalism and the pride that sneaks up because of it, Paul gives us the antidote. This is what we lean into. We seek to live connected to Jesus. And that's your fill-in. To avoid legalism, stay connected to Jesus. We just focus on that. We focus on staying connected to him and coming back to him. And even if you trip yourself up, you know, you make some bad calls, you do stuff that, that you know is not right, shameful, whatever, you just come right back to Jesus. And you confess it immediately and you lean right back into him. And you get right back on the path and focus on what to do, not what not to do. Because that's where the power is. You see, Colossians 1.18 says, Christ is the head of the church, which is his body. And so we want Christ's mind in us. And we want Christ's spirit to indwell us. And we want Christ's wisdom to fuel us. So that as Christ's body, we can function like elite athletes. And we are all part of the body of Christ. Friends, every single one of us has a function. Every single one of us has a role to play in the body of Christ and in the church that follows Jesus. Romans 12, 4 through 6 says this, Just as our bodies have many parts, and each part a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body, and we all belong to each other. In his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So, if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. You know, you look at that passage real quick, and I, and I hope you do. Read over it again. You'll see that we each have different gifts. And that we each actually need to be serving out of those gifts because we belong to each other. Jesus is the head. We are members of the body and we belong to each other. And then in that passage, the phrase I want you to circle and kind of focus on right now is just this little phrase, in his grace. 
in his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. Using those gifts, employing those gifts on behalf of his church and his people, this is a part of God's grace being extended to us and being extended through us. And again, if you're filling in the blanks, the last one is this. This is the formula that Paul gives. If you can do blank, do blank with all the faith that you have. Right? He says, if you can prophesy, do it with all the faith that you have. And you could just extend this out. If you have the gift of hospitality, be hospitable with all the faith you have. If you could serve kids, serve kids with all the faith that you have. If, if, you, um, if you know how to share your faith, share your faith with all of the faith that you have. If you know how to give generously, give generously with all the faith that you have. And the list goes on and on and on. If you can do blank. Do blank with all the faith that you have. Um, forget the don'ts, but do live connected with Jesus and serve with your gifts and talents. Over like we are to serve God's church, God's family. But, but check this. It's never in order to earn the love of Jesus. We serve radically. We're to serve sacrificially. We're to serve consistently, but not to earn his love. I want to be crystal clear, because Jesus already loves you. Jesus already has poured out his love for you. Jesus has already proven his love for us. No, we don't serve in order to earn Christ's love. We serve because we've received it. We serve because we've received his love. Now we want to serve other people. We want to serve our children. We want to serve our students. We want to serve our young adults. We want to serve uh, just the entire body. We want to serve our community. Why? Because Jesus has poured his love out over us so richly. And so, friends, uh, I'm going to wrap this up here. I want to make sure you understand that, that we are alive in Christ. We are forgiven in Christ. We are free in Christ. The way to avoid legalism is to stay connected to Jesus, to stay connected to the head of the family of God, to stay connected to the head of the body of Christ, right? That this is the head of our church. And the way in which we continue on this journey is we focus on the do's, what to do, how to serve how to honor Jesus, how to lean into him, how to pursue him throughout the course of our days because that's where the power comes from, staying connected to him. Amen? Amen. 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 Okay, why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for Paul and for how you inspired him to write this letter and to make things clear. And I want to Thank you for the way in which you have encouraged us today through what you had Paul write 2,000 years ago to the church at Colossae. I feel like this church called Overlake has just received this letter, and it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And right now, Jesus, we just ask that you would continue to do your work. I know that there might be some additional deepening, and, and some of the concepts that we've talked about need a little time to percolate and to take root and to grow and, and to bear fruit. And so, Jesus, I just ask by the power of your spirit that you would continue to do your work within us. Continue to feed us with the nourishment of your grace, with the assurance of your love, 
with the reminder of how unfailing and how unconditional and how everlasting your love and pursuit of us is. We receive that now in the name of Jesus Christ. And then we ask that you would use it as rocket fuel for us to focus on what it is you call us to do, how it is you call us to serve and share, how we might make a difference in this world for your name's sake. Because Jesus, we loved you, or we love you, and we are loved by you. And so we just want to say thank you. It's with a heart of gratitude we pray all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.